0: Starring Jamie Dobb And Christian (laughs) Grey Special music tonight for Tribal Theocrat Live I am Christian Grey and we have Jamie Dobb on the line right now And he's from UK and he's going to be discussing Some issues out there, the politics and what's going on out there across the pond So Jamie, thanks for joining me brother
1: Hi there, Christian. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, and uh, thank you everyone for tuning to listen.
0: Really good to have you here. I'm so grateful that you're willing to be a trooper and stay up. It's five hours later out there.
1: Well, well, I am a night owl by nature, and you know you kind of get into these things when you're studying up late and doing night shifts. Uh, so, <laughs> don't up your sleep system, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and we've got a chat room open. You can go to Tribal Theocrat. Dot com and click the chat link at the top to participate and ask questions for our guest Jamie and perhaps you guys in the chat room can let us know how the audio levels are doing because we 're using some different software tonight
1: oh yes hasn 't that been exciting yeah it
0: 's been I think the wrong time to switch from Windows to Linux, but I think in
1: the in the end it 's going to be a good decision but well, sometimes you have to take these uh, these risks <laughs> I think so they can blow up but
0: <laughs> Well, I guess we'll just get plugging away with uh with with the show and perhaps you could do a brief introduction of yourself before you talk about the political situation in Britain.
1: Sure, that'd be uh, absolutely yeah, fine. Well, as you all know, my name is Jamie Dobb. I'm a 25-year-old young, single, handsome free Englishman living in <laughs> living across the pond in the UK. And um, I used to work with my father in the motorcycle uh and accessory industry and um i was actually studying to become a teacher although i've kind of put they put my uh, long-term studies on hold due to the uh, tuition tr- tuition fee uh, fee crisis over in the uk and um, i've been traveling around the world i've been to several european countries and uh, i've been to south africa twice which uh, i'll be discussing about in uh, next week's well next time show And uh, and I'm pretty much a uh, right winger when it comes to political and uh, religious issues, so that's pretty much me in a nutshell.
0: (laughs) That's excellent, and thanks for uh, mentioning that. By the way, we are doing Jamie Dobb interview again two weeks from now on June 15th. We'll be discussing some issues about South Africa and his experience out there. But today we'll talk about Britain. What's going on with the political situation out there, Jamie?
1: Well, at the moment, Christian, it's a bit of a... uh, I'd say we're in wild waters at the moment. The whole situation has become very alive with the recent death of uh, soldier Lee Rigby. Um, There's a lot of questions now about immigration. There's a lot of fears for the future. Uh, The the recent uh, victory by the UK Independence Party has actually got people now questioning, could we be seeing the rise... Of anti-EU forces now beginning to influence the, the British decision-making process, um, but, but there is a, a lot, a tremendous lot of fear now, especially about Islam and, and this attack in particular. I would actually say set off a powder keg. We're now seeing once again the rise of street groups; these are beginning to return. Um, so it's, it's getting quite hot at the moment. <laughs> yeah, as we, you and I talked a few days ago about the. Uh, the dismal
0: situation in which you guys virtually are unarmed to really do anything about it.
1: Correct. This is, um, this is very true. Um, not, we, 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 we are now unarmed to the point where we cannot even carry pepper spray around as as self-defense. If you carry pepper spray, you were going to get sent to the cop shop, mate. And it's like I was talking once to a special police constable, and uh, I saw her she had pepper spray on her, and I said, can you actually use that? And she said, no, even if I use it in the most extreme circumstances, I could still get into tr- trouble. We're not even allowed to use this. So even the police sometimes are unarmed in certain situations.
0: Now, was the Muslim murderer allowed to have that knife on him?
1: oh no absolutely not he got that illegally wow. um but now there's even the um knife amnesty which has been coming in because there's a, a strong uh, knife uh, culture down in london which came pretty much from the blackened afro-caribbean immigration and uh, no surprise there Um it's
0: hard to no. believe that uh, criminals would obey laws Army, I'm, it's hard to believe that criminals
1: would break laws. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, I, I know. Can't we really trust these guys? Right. I mean, come on, they're going to play fair, aren't they? You know, it's absolutely ridiculous, man. But um, well, let's have a discussion about the EU and the future of Britain. Sure, that that is an interesting topic. Um, the European Union, as I, as I would say, is in a, a period of crisis right now. The uh, euro currency is now faltering. And um, there is now a lot of question, will Britain continue to be in the EU? This was taught, not even heard, ten years ago, when it seemed pretty much, with Tony Blair dragging his head heeled even more into the EU, um, there, there, there was no question really about uh, about leaving, but now there is a real question mark: will we be leaving the EU? And with now the, U, the rise of UKIP, that question is becoming even more formidable. So far, the um, due to the pressure of UKIP, the uh, coalition government here under David Cameron have agreed to have a vote on a referendum in June and so far talks are that they've told their MPs to vote for it but the question of this referendum is will it be a full-blown referendum that guarantees Britain's withdrawal from the EU or will it be the case of of offering a referendum where we agreed to claw back powers from the EU rather than a full withdrawal and when it comes to the polls if it comes down to a full withdrawal versus clawing back powers from the EU The British public, by and large, will always vote for clawing back powers. They don't really want to leave the EU, you know. They don't want to give up the Mediterranean summer holidays and splashing the Euros out, uh, you know, in Spain and France. They don't want to give that up. Um, But they don't want to be entrenched into the EU system either. So I think if push came to shove and they were to offer a watered-down referendum, it still wouldn't get us out of it. Um, But even if we were to leave the EU we still have a problem um, gen- genuinely genuinely down to the fact that um, sorry i'll yeah, genuinely down to the fact that britain is now becoming a lone player in the world if we now leave the european union um, With American demographics now changing, um, we could face ourselves very much, very much on our own because the more the demographics in America start to change, the more we're going to start to to see the foreign policy start to change. I mean, recently with the Falklands vote, uh, with the recognition of the Falklands, I think the US State Department in discussion with Argentina a couple of years ago recognised the Falklands as being the Malvinas. So, the more the demographics like to change, the more foreign policy is going to be Latin American centered, unless on Europe. And so, Britain once again could be isolated, so we can't rely on the traditional US British alliance. So, the only other alternative is the Commonwealth, which, but the problem is Canada and Australia, they may want to go independent. and And I think the only real country that would want to maintain a strong uh, lead in the Commonwealth would be India, but that means we'd have to be playing second fiddle to India. So it's uh, would be in a very, um, a very difficult situation, I think, if we were to completely withdraw from the EU on, on that scale. Mm-hmm. Uh. The
0: your 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 military and our military over here seem to have some commonalities in that we both like to invade sovereign nations and murder Mm. and displace people. (laughs) I I don't know what the status of Britain's military is right now. Could you
1: talk about that? Uh, Yeah, sure. I will – the the status of the British military at the moment is in in a very weakened position compared to what we saw it in the Cold War. Um, During the period of the Cold War, we, we, we pretty much had quite a sizable force where we could intervene Uh, decisively all over the world even as an independent military uh, force. Uh, During the Falklands War for example we were able to um, our our, our fleet was able to support our ground forces with at least three aircraft carriers so we we could actually fight on our own terms. Now due to all the budget cuts starting with the Labour government under Tony Blair we've now seen the reduction of, of the British military to such a weak level and with the coalitions continued cuts we are now very much in a precarious position that we will never ever be able to fight another war alone, without the assistance of an ally. And um, just here, for example, I've got the uh, the actual numbers of the future of the Royal Navy, and um, they're pretty much they've decommissioned two of the aircraft carriers. One we're going to be sharing with the French, who, uh, as you know, we're always going to have decision making pot decision making difficulties uh, you know with the old uh, with the old enemies <laughs> um, and, and especially in regards to the Falklands even the French have always been pro Buenos, Air, Buenos Aires and, and as a result they are more likely to side with Argentina so if we need that aircraft carrier we're stumped Um Currently, there are only six ships and submarines under construction at the moment. There's four astute class submarines and two Queen Elizabeth aircraft carriers. They're going to be replacing the, um, the, the three aircraft carriers that we're going to be decommissioning, which is the invincible class. However, if that itself happens, we're still going to be a decade without... A carrier fleet. I mean, the um, the Queen Elizabeth classes class aircraft carriers are only going to be coming really online from around the twenty twenties. So, in regards, we cannot we, we cannot uh, as we traditionally have project project a traditional uh, blue water navy. We are now. Redundant in the, in the um, in projecting projecting power. Our our army has now been cut down to about ninety ninety thousand troops. That's the lowest seen since the Anglo Boer War in the uh, late nineteenth century. And the actual equipment shortages and military funding has been an absolute disaster in Iraq in Afghanistan. Um, has been books written about this in particular from a chap called Richard North. Um, who's actually detailed, detailed the uh, the actual horrific uh, equipment short and logistic failures in the Afghan and the Iraq campaigns. And British troops were at one point having to go to American troops uh, to ask for food even and to, to borrow even basic equipment. That's how undersupplied they were in some cases. Um, the British government had really sent an army out, out there that hadn't got the, the equipment really to fight. Uh, and if this is the case of the British military today, then obviously we can see that um, as an independent fighting power, we really are going to have trouble. But in regards as, as well to the EU, my own opinion is that they've weakened the British military to this point in order to incorporate the British military into a future EU military. Sorry, not Brit- well. And, and that is the more we cannot defend on ourselves, the more reliant we will become on Brussels and right. uh, in Eurocor. And that is pretty much what, what they've been aiming for to make us, you know, redundant as an independent fighting power. What does the average Brit think about
0: your military's involvement in Afghanistan and in Iraq?
1: And um, my opinion. Uh, Did you say all the general public's opinion? Yeah, just
0: general – what's your feel on that? I know that it's often the case that the the powers that be, the elites, uh, they get us involved in these wars and and sometimes the people
1: that have to fund it through taxpayers don't like Mm -hmm. it. Mhm I, I agree with that well it's quite it's quite interesting but uh, I remember this was 13, you know when I was 13 year, years years old and the the, the war trade centers had just come down and I think it was a few months before christmas october 2001 and we would just moved into a, a new house and uh, we we obviously had to get uh, one of the plumbers around and uh, he came around and he's chatting with my dad and his his mate was X S A S and uh, he was just saying how they're now mobilising the forces to get ready to go into Afghanistan. It had just been announced by Tony Blair how we had to go in and free the people and capture Al-Qaeda and, you know, bring these terrorists to justice. And it was just like World War Two, you know mom and dad are watching the tv and everybody else is getting all worked up yes let's go in and let's get a psalm over and you know let's get these buggers back for what they've done to our country not sorry to america and our allies and and there was a lot of uh, jingoistic support but now uh so years well a decade and a half later the support has diminished Um, it originally started with the Iraq War. During the Afghanistan War, there was a lot of support, but with the Iraq War in 2003, the public saw no point, and there was the question of Britain being a poodle to George W. Bush, as we all know, well, Blair. And... um, and that was when people started to become against the adventures. Whereas with Afghanistan, they were all up for it. It, it was the same attitude they had in World War Two after Pearl Harbor. Um, whereas now, on the on the other, whereas whereas now, fast forward to twenty thirteen, as we see, people. Forgotten about the Iraq war, although it's left a bitter, bitter, bit, bitter legacy. People disagreed over here that it was a just war and they felt we'd been lied to, especially by the Blair and Bush government at the time. um the, the, the um, but in regards to Afghanistan, the people just want the lads home and it's now affected a generation. This is not a short term conflict where it's to be forgotten about now. We've now got an entire generation of young men and women that have actually served in Afghanistan in some point or another. Women mainly in logistics, men on the front line in combat. I mean I've encountered so many now young people in colleges elsewhere that have actually served in that conflict and they now have memories. So it's become a long conflict and a never-ending one. And I think people are asking when will it end? When? When will it really end? the Cameron government have actually announced that they want to be pulling out all British assets from 2015. And we have pulled out from Iraq. I think U S combat operations have ended in Iraq. Am I correct now?
0: I think that's correct.
1: Correct. Yes. I, I think they may have some black water assets in there, but uh, otherwise they've now pulled out. Um, and it was like they were saying an alternative, right. That's become the forgotten war. Um, uh, Nobody really remembers the Iraq War anymore. Whereas 10 years ago, it was all the latest news. Uh, And Afghanistan has become something of a memory compared to what it was. Um, But uh, but in other words, people are against it. And and so that's, that's my opinion. It started off with support, but then people started to be against it. But in saying that, though, in regards to Iraq, I do remember people being very supportive initially when they thought there was weapons of mass destruction, but it changed, obviously, you know, when they found there was nothing there.
0: (laughs) Yeah, same here. I think everyone, all those stupid Christians out here just let George Bush do whatever he wanted to do, because after all, he was a born-again Christian and he quit drinking.
1: Well, uh, (laughs) in regards to Christianity and Blair, Blair was a a staunch Roman Catholic and he converted, if I recall, in in office. Um, But and he actually once made this speech once on a live chat show and i think he was talked about uh, how he believes god's guiding him and help you know get, and he's doing uh, god's work in britain and i think it was uh, was it alistair darling um not alistair darling so well i've got the chap's name now but one of his important aides and he said to him Tony, the British public do not do God. It does not work over here like it does in America with George (laughs) W. Bush. You know, they're not going to go for it in the same way like those, you know, Christians down south, for example.
0: Well, you mentioned Tony Blair, who's the prime minister. But you guys have something else out there that we don't have, and that's the the monarchy. Talk about the Mm -hmm. relationship of parliament with monarchy and then just in general about the future and popularity of the monarchy.
1: Sure. Well, at the moment, Britain is a constitutional um, democracy. Uh, so, not constitutional, but a constitutional monarchy. Um, by and large, the Queen does have to answer to Parliament, and every year she goes for you know a speech. And she's the Prime Minister has to go every two weeks to brief her on the um, the affairs of state. Um, what? Um, She has to do do that officially, even when it comes to signing EU documents uh, or even military conflict or to engage in certain important decisions of state. The Queen still has to have her signature um, before they can go ahead with it. So the Queen does still have a bit of power, but it's nothing like what the monarchy used to have, but she's still a very, very wealthy and powerful woman. I tend to think the Queen... She believes she's doing her duty for Britain and she believes she's done her duty, and that is carrying on the affairs of state that she was educated uh, and tutored to do. And she believes she, I believe, she believes she has fulfilled that role in her life, and that is keeping silent in the affairs of state and only intervening when is necessary. So, in other words, they still have to technically answer to the Queen, but. Parliament also has a lot of, a lot of power on its own however pa- however, a lot of that power, f- power has now been transferred to the European union um, you know like i said parliament seventy five percent of our laws are now made in Brussels, so you know Parliament really isn't that sovereign at all anymore um, However, when you listen to the queen's speeches, you can really tell she has lost a lot. Of power, in a sense that she was once taught giving a speech about uh, funding disabled children and children in the third world, and you know the usual typical lefty you know let's universalistic notions of let's save the world and um, but, but rather than the actual real affairs of state and what's really affecting Britain uh, so she does have reduced powers but still some some authority there I mean that the army in this country still has to swear uh, an oath to the queen. Uh, unlike in America where it's the constitution, over here, this were to protect the queen and her family, so that, that she may guide and govern Britain. Um, but So if there was ever a domestic conflict in this country, the, the army's loyalties is still there with the monarchy. Uh, In regards to the actual future and the domestic popularity of the monarchy, back in the 1990s during the death of Diana and uh, a few years before, the the monarchy was in a state of um, high unpopularity. There was the questions of does Britain really need a monarchy Uh, uh, when, when it's about to enter the 21st century? There's a lot of strong socialist and republican feelings at the time. And and people really thought that the monarchy had become a useless institution whereas suddenly when Diana died it reignited a lot of interest in the monarchy and at the time there was a lot of press saying where is the queen mourning with the rest of the country whilst we're mourning over Diana's death the whole country suddenly started to mourn Diana and uh, that led to some unpopularity from her. Uh, but when she eventually came out and, you know, she did her own speeches, we remember from 97, that boosted a lot of popularity once again for her and people were able to grieve with the Queen. But I always remember one of my ex-tutors in college, he actually t- said to me, uh, I remember that time so well. And I asked myself the question, why do we all need to grieve with the Queen for about Diana? I wasn't grieving with the Queen, but... He was one of those socialist twits. Uh, And he looked like a typical socialist twitter also. And he was a big Joseph Stalin lover, so it's no surprise there. Um, Adolf Hitler was the devil, but Uncle Joe Stalin could do no wrong, so no surprise there. Um, That's an opinion like that would come from him. Uh, Funnily enough as well, whilst I'm talking about him, I remember once we were in a class and he said, can you all imagine the future 400 years from now? And so everybody's waiting for it and he's like, we're all going to be coffee-coloured. White is going to become dark and dark is going to become light and we're all going to be happy and everything's going to be great and everything's going to be technological and, you know, we're going to be looked upon as being primitive. I mean, can you believe that, Christian? Can you believe that? Sounds like a nightmare. Sounds like a nutjob more like. <laughs> But um, anyway, yeah, but in regards to the monarchy... Um, Yes, in in regards to the Queen herself She suddenly uh, This popularity reignited with her And people uh, felt very connected To the Queen And the Queen is a very core symbol In regards to Britain's identity And its status Um, It's it's the it's the core, if you like, identity that gets the people to rally around the nation, and it always has been. You know, from ver- from our wars in the past, even as as late as the Second World War, it's always been rally around to defend king or queen and country. And there's a lot more popularity now for the monarchy than there ever was, due to. Um, William and the marriage to uh, Kate Middleton, that's reunited a lot of int- interest and support for the monarchy. But I would just like to point out to the, um, to the listeners here that the monarchy um, it, it's itself is mainly supported by the white British public, all the pictures that you see of the celebrations of the jubilee, and the uh, the queen's birthdays, and the, uh, the the marriage to Catherine Middleton, and the announcement of the pregnancy, it and even at the sports events, it's mainly the white British public that support their monarchy. The new um, non-white uh, migrants that have entered Britain have very little interest. Some of the older generation do. Um, But by and large, it's mainly, younger generation-wise, it's mainly the white British population that have an interest. What I actually see is that the monarchy in this country is going down the road of the Austrian Habsburgs, as I wrote about in my article on faith and heritage. And that is, if the demographics of this country continue to rapidly change, as they are doing, the popularity of the monarchy is going to dip to such a low that That at some point they will will have no authority or power or influence over the country whatsoever, and they will just have to flee. That, you know, the new Islamic demographic, for example, isn't going to want to keep, uh, you know, old Charles on the throne. You know, they're going to want the throne (laughs) and Buckingham Palace. You know, it's. uh, uh, it's not they're not going to so, th- so their future is very much in doubt uh, and i remember once this article saying oh let's get excited for the new royal baby it's going to be a 20 it's 22nd century monarchy uh, heir to the monarchy and i thought to myself really or well, more of a not everyone habsburg uh, you know the uh, yeah. you know the austrian uh, guy that was out of power
0: <laughs> i don't think i i don't think i was aware that you wrote for faith and heritage i just Posted the link in the chat room To your article, The Fate of Britain
1: Yes, I uh, do write for Faith And Heritage um, I've not written a, another article for a while I was due to do one this week just would like to apologize to the, uh, the the Website for that, but I've just been busy with classes And you know how that goes So I'll probably get to it next yeah. week or so But I've got some more articles planned, don't worry yeah.
0: <laughs> You mentioned the word Twit, what's the English translation For Twit? Is it like uh, prick? <laughs> I
1: think it, it means idiot basically. Idiot? We have a lot. Yeah, okay. we've got lots of um, you know little sayings and meanings. I mean, I could go into you know our swear words all day, but I don't think that would be you know very appropriate on air. But
0: uh, I promised myself <laughs> that I was going to use some British slang. So I no, to, absolutely. Feel free right to buy the mommy matey. No problem <laughs> whatsoever. Youth. All right. Well, how about the economic problems I'm, I'm sure you guys have the same
1: bankers over there that we do what's going on with economics out there in britain the economy in britain is uh, as we know very weak at this moment in time and um, the i mean i think it was the um not, not, not the Federal Reserve, sorry, the World Bank uh, have actually said Britain, you're in a lot more trouble than you're letting on you know, even the Bank of England is saying unless we continue to print more money out and uh, we continue to put more, you know, push, you know, splurge more money into the banks, we're, we're not going to you'd be able to survive and um, we, we need we need to keep, keep on with this austerity plan. So far, George Osborne and the rest of the, um, well, the you know the, the top chiefs of the British economy, they're pretty much sticking to Plan A. The, as George Osborne famously said, "There is no Plan B. There is Plan A, and we are sticking to Plan A." And what we've actually, uh, and, and that's pretty much more of the same, continuing with the same austerity and status quo economic politics as we've seen. Um, what? is happening now is that all of our industry has now been, uh, de uh, this took place during the, the era of Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. Um, and my, my parents, for example, they, they grew, well, they grew up in the, uh, well, and I still live here, obviously in the, in the East Midlands, the Derbyshire Nottinghamshire area. And the Derbyshire Nottinghamshire area has always been, um, famous for its coal mining and, um, text uh, text uh, textile industry and, and leather and uh, so it 's always been a very industrialized county similar in a sense to the West midlands and, and north uh, and, and as a result uh, as a result of this, the population was primarily a, a working class uh, descent in, in these areas um, pr- pretty much that they, those were the industries during the Thatcher days. Well, Their closures were starting in the 1970s during the days of Margaret Thatcher. All all these industries started to close one by one. I mean, my own mother and father remembers uh, factories, you know, being sold off and closed down literally every week or every month. It was it was so common. And suddenly, you had this vast, the largest splurge of, uh, of people ready to go onto onto benefit. And as a result of this um and with the closure of the coal mines we actually then started to see this traditionally hard working class population uh disappear now under the, the thatcher era she started to encourage welfareism, especially to these communities uh, they rioted especially during the coal miners' strike which my parents remembered they wanted not to keep the pits closed they wanted to keep their jobs uh, you know that. Uh, They actually remember the fighting taking place at the time and uh, since they grew up in Nottinghamshire, they remember the Nottinghamshire Coal Miners uh, uh, Miners Association pretty much saying, "Nope, you know, we're not going to strike anymore, we're going to go back to work in the pits. At that time, uh, whereas the others like Yorkshire and Derbyshire decided, no, we'll continue striking. But there was a lot of unity against the closure of factories and the coal mines and this actually increased the uh, presence of, of the Labour Party and uh, obviously the socialists in, in this area, although as my grandfather always used to say, if the people ever put up if Labour ever put up a pig in this area they'd still vote for it it's yeah. got you know very strong socialist links and 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 that only helped to reinforce it um, but as a result of Thatcher's policies and this deindustrialisation that took place throughout the country just like in my region we saw the, the growing of this welfare class and this started under Margaret Thatcher uh, as I, as i said before and that's it and that and that and that is the local inhabitants if you like were you know were shoved off into the welfare offices and they were kind of offered fancy going on the sick mate you know you look a bit uh, look peachy under the weather there and so people were taking the welfare checks which were you know were quite generous at the time and and within an entire decade within just 10 years these entire working class communities transferred into welfare pits absolutely incredible but this was done to bribe people so they would be pretty much to, you know take the loss of their jobs and and the, their traditional, uh, econ, econ, the traditional strong economic um, base in the community that they they would accept it, and they would kind of accept their servitude in a sense and 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 that is what they did and now you don't see as much rioting because people are comfortable on welfare whereas before they were proud to work they were proud to hold their jobs and they were willing to get out there and have a good old a good old bash whereas you don't tend to see it as much anymore Um, but in regards to the economy a lot of those people in the 90s and started to go into the retail sector. Uh, my father was one of these. And that actually started to, to become a, a, growth, a growth industry and we started to see the rise of a lower middle class. And uh, What we always have to remember about Britain is that Britain never had the same amount of economic prosperity as America had during the 1950s and 60s. It was still coming out of the war. They were still rationing. And Britain was becoming a weakened economic power. And as a result of as a result of this, as a result of the growth of Europe and the Commonwealth, uh, and, 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 and industries elsewhere, but you know British goods became expensive, uh, and obviously they decided to go with the offshoring. We were becoming weaker, and so that traditional middle class prosperity, the white picket fence, as, as we see in the American nineteen fifties uh, suburbanville, kind of never existed in Britain. It was these cramped, still ex or. If you like working class communities, the, you know it was only really, I'd say, with the, starting with the 1970s, but really with the 80s and the 90s, where we started to see um, the, the, the rising social mobility-wise of, of, of the middle class into this new lower middle class, primarily backed through the dot-com bubble and the retail sector, where now that is dying, that boom is dying. And these people that made their money in the 90s are now going back down to the dole Queue, just like with the, with, the, with the coal miners, those jobs are now disappearing due to the internet and due to um, the offshoring of, of um, IT jobs to the, um, to India in particular. So a lot of these, te- these jobs uh, are now disappearing. And I remember in the 90s, my grandfather was telling me, Jamie, go and train and get yourself into computers, lad, because that's where the future is, mate. That's where the future is. Get yourself into computers. And you know something... Grandpa was was wrong because all those people that got themselves into computers, they've uh, now not, not 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 got any jobs because they've been offshored. So uh, we're not really producing anything as an industry at the moment, and, and it's like one guy said to me: the only thing we have is banking, and that's our only industry, and that's rotten to the core, mate. That's rotten to the core, and. Um, so I think I'll just give it a pause here and let you ask the next question. I apologize for, uh, for talking on there. But, uh, oh, no, it's,
0: this is, this is your, your time. Really good information. About, I'm, I know I'm learning a lot. I wanted to talk about sorry. another similar problem we have, and that's the immigration problem. And there's yes. actually a question from the chat room that you may address in this section, and that is, what do you think about the National Front Party out there?
1: The, the National Front Party out there um, ah yes, I see this here now the the National Front uh, is an interesting political party. Uh, it was really the first ma- major organization that started to, to to get going as as an opposition to immigration, starting i think pretty much around the 1960s Um, However, should I talk about the National Front directly or should I talk about the history of immigration first? Uh,
0: Yeah, I I would Uh, just go with uh, the topic of immigration. But if you had some thoughts about that party, go ahead and – Sure. I've got quite
1: a lot of thoughts about that party. So what I'll do is I'll go uh, through immigration first and then we can get to the National Front and so forth. Sure. Uh, Anyway – Uh, What happened is it was the 1940s when immigration really started to affect Great Britain. Uh, Pretty much around 1947-1948 we had two waves of immigration. Now the first was the Eastern European wave. This was coming from the the, the newly acquired communist countries. Ex ex um, ex fighters, in particular from these countries that fought for Britain, and and those fleeing from communism, and so they came to settle in Britain. So there's Poles, Czechs, you know, so forth. Italians, even German prisoners of war settled here. So they were kind of the the first uh, the 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 first wave. Now they came at the same time as the first black immigrant population, and this came primarily from the Commonwealth colony at the time of Jamaica. And the excuse was used at the time that we had a shortage of men due to the losses in the Second World War, which was only up to uh, three hundred, three hundred thousand or so, I'd just like to add, not even half as many as the Great War. Uh, 20 years previously, that took up to a nearly a million men. Um, so we not had as many casualties compared, but anyway, they said we needed to fill these jobs, we needed them to drive our buses and do our plumbing and blah, blah, blah. So they invited them in. Now, compared to the Polish immigration at the time and the Black immigration, it both were received very differently. The the people at the time, like they're doing today, moaned about the Eastern Europeans as usual. Oh, can't understand them. Can't speak their language. But by and large, they integrated very quickly within a generation, into uh, the point that nobody. Knew, well, they were not Polish anymore, they were British, there was no complaints and there was never any protests or march. Marches, they they just disappeared and melted into the population, assimilated. The black population, on the other hand, never was able to do so. Uh, They brought a lot of crime with them, as you know. Uh, The the first generation of them, the older generation, were, were more Christian and they were willing to work, but their children's descendants... Uh, started to actually climb more into poverty, into welfareism. And uh, as a result of as a result of this, there was a lot of crime and there was a lot of fear of them taking over our neighborhoods. And people didn't react to the to the blacks kindly. They couldn't associate with them. It was foreign to them. And and so this is where the history of the National Front comes from. In the forties and the 50s there were several parties like the the uh, the Empire loyalists of the British Empire and so forth and G.K. Chesterton had a group, but the National Front had its roots pretty much in the sixties, and that actually started and that actually started when the wave of uh, Indian immigration came into the UK, and 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 that came from Indian Pakistan and Uganda, uh, if I recall, when Idi Amin exp- expelled the. Um, the, the, the Asian population that had settled in Uganda during the British Empire, they were then invited into Britain, particularly Leicester and Bradford. And so a lot of these immigrants came into the, in the 1960s. Now, the National Front was a response to this. They, they responded primarily to, to, to this immigration, along with the black immigration, but it was primarily to the Asian immigration. And if you look at videos from the 1960s when the National Front was at its high, people were saying, like they are today, my neighbourhood's being flooded. I don't feel like I'm in my country anymore. What's Britain going to look like in a hundred years? The same. The same comments is what you hear now. Pete, I mean, there's one uh, video of one woman saying, "How oh am I going to raise this little boy?" How am I going to you know, raise this little boy of mine with all these immigrants? You know, I can't raise him in this country anymore. And that's how people felt. So, as a result, you saw a lot of white flight and people gathering around the National Front. Now, the National Front's heyday was the 1970s. Uh, this was pretty much led at the time by John Tyndall, who was a very prominent uh, figurehead for the National Front. He wrote for Spearhead. And Tyndall was able, uh, and Nick Griffin was involved at the time. Andrew Bronze, probably names people have recognized here they were very much involved with the, the, well, the formation if you like and the actual march of the national front and um, andrew bean i think he's another one uh, there was there was a lot of these people uh, they got together and they had and people were willing to fight back uh, and there was actually uh, obviously battles between the um the, the socialists at the time, but there were, but unlike what we see with the EDL today, there was more of a racial element with the National Front. People were not frightened of being racist like they are now. People were openly racist, in a sense, and and that is by that they they were not scared of of voicing their own opinions like they are today. They, they don't hide saying I, I'm I'm black, I've got my mate, and you know, but I'm just against Islam. They were very much no, we're against black muslim immigration we we don't we don't want this here that's what they they stood for they were going to do well and and, and there was actually a belief at the time that they could get into parliament and win Three seats back in the late 1970s. People even thought to be a national front government in the UK. That's how insane it was back then. Uh, And the immigration was nothing like today. It was still a very white British country. But people literally thought there could be a national front government at one point. And um, what happened was Margaret Thatcher in 1979 came along where the NF was expected to make its huge breakthrough. And she said, "Um, I agree with you. We are being swamped by foreign immigration. Our, our, our neighbourhoods are chaining, uh, changing and we need to put a stop to this. Now, at that, everybody rallied around Thatcher. They thought Maggie's going to do it. We don't have to hold our noses and vote for the National Front. We know we can keep our noses clean and vote for the Conservative Party and everything's going to be well. And so that killed off the National Front vote. And the National Front then just disappeared into oblivion with that and from the 80s onwards nationalism became fractured like it has today and that led to but this led to the rise of the bnp uh, which i'll talk a bit about a bit later there's a lot to discuss about the bnp now the national front today however is making a comeback due to the demise of the bnp a lot of the ex-racialists within the bnp are now joining the national front and others uh, that are not impressed with the other parties that have come about what I view the National Front as is they're more like the British version of the Golden Dawn. Um, it's not going to work with the British people. Unlike the Greeks, the British have have, have had political correctness thrown down their, their throat now for too long. They're not going to want to rejoin such a radical alternative, and the party itself doesn't really have any long-term plans. Uh, their pretty much policy is keep the wogs out, and everything will be all right. When that's not the case, you know you've got to think, you know, long-term strategically how are you going to run this country? But that's out. That's their policy, basically, you know. And uh, repatriation and everything's going to be all right, and everything will be sorted. Um, but uh, and if we pull out of the EU and everything else, that'll be fine. But once again, you've got to look long-term into the situation. Um, um, can, do I sympathise with them like many people do? I, I can see what they're trying to achieve with the communitarian efforts, but I think, uh, but by and large, as a, as, as a long-term alternative, I, I think they, they're going to have to clean their image a lot and, uh, and really come up with some radical, logical alternatives rather than just keeping with the sim- simplistic care. Uh, reactionary uh, conclusion to the situ- problem at hand. Uh, if you'd uh, like to ask another question. <laughs> Questions are open
0: for Jamie Dobb in the chat room. Sure, and no, I don't have any off the top of my head. You mentioned
1: something about the BMP that you'd be covering. Um, I, I don't uh, know what yeah. that is. Uh, actually, I've just read from Jamie Castillo here. Is Jamie suggesting that Thatcher's assurance regarding the immigration okay. tide Caused the demise of the national front uh yes, he's absolutely correct with that Thatcher's assurance did uh cause the demise of the national front uh, I can uh, guarantee to you that um people thought Thatcher was going to sort it out. And, and 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 people then thought, right, we'll put our trust in in Thatcher for that, not in not in the National Front. Now, in regards to the BNP, they were coming up as a very strong party for for, for making a breakthrough in nationalist politics here. They Nick Griffin, uh, well, John Tyndall from the National Front had founded the BNP, uh, if I recall. Um, with, with some other disgruntled National Front members and they actually wanted to try and make an electoral breakthrough into Britain rather than the typical boots and uh, boots on the streets approach of the old and f uh, In the 90s they were playing around with this tactic and back in 93 they managed to get their first council elected which was Derek Beacon and at the time newspapers were like hurrah, the Nazis have got uh, a seat in office. Um, at the time... However, um, Derek Beacon wasn't wasn't an educated man, he was a a flop candidate, Uh, there was no real intellectual discourse with them and uh, and as a result he, he got booted out after a few months and the party went back into dismal. John Tyndall was always a staunch radical uh, man with his views. He was not willing to compromise. He, he he would criticize the the Jewish question. He would criticize whatever he saw before his eyes. Nick Griffin was willing to make compromises. Nick Griffin was uh, came came to the scene in the, in 1999, and Nick Griffin actually said look, we need to modernise the party here like the, Na- like the Front National are doing in France. We need to start getting elected. We, we need to start cleaning our image up. We need to get away from the uh, the boots and the fists. And so people... So in a narrow election, T- Tindall was booted out and Griffin came to the fore and Griffin did clean up the party uh, for a brief while. And then they started to make electoral gains in, 19- in 2002 onwards. However, there was still a lot of baggage with the BNP. There was still a lot, uh, and, and that is there was still a lot, a lot of, a lot of members with with, do, with 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 dodgy, but I'd say dodgy connections with uh, more cr- criminal uh, pasts, and the the decent, honest people in that party were were eventually uh, hounded out by Nick Griffin because he didn't want any talent in the party that could potentially challenge his future, his actual reign of the party. And what we started to see here is a lot of talented BNP members were then leaving the party in droves. And as a result, the councillors that were getting elected were, were very incompetent. They were not attending mm-hmm. meetings. Uh, they uh, they were not educated. they um, Or, or they actually caused problems during council meetings or... The, the, it was inco- there were very incompetent Stooges, but these were the people Griffin wanted, and as a result, we saw the formation of this one man dictatorship within the party from, from what i 've read, I was never a member myself, and but I do know people that were and I remember talking to Alman back in two thousand and eight, even when the BNP was doing well electorally, and they were gaining count, um, county councils and well getting ready to take county council seats over the following year, which they succeeded in doing. And this woman said to me, she said, Jamie, if they don't kick out Mark Collett and Nick Griffin, that party is going to fall apart, uh, with it, uh, guaranteed. And she was right. Um, during the EU elections, the success of Griffin's tactics, if you like, um, caused big wins for the party due to the dissatisfaction disfac- disf- with the immigration situation at that time. And this promoted a very large boost for the party. And, And Griffin himself was looked upon as very popular in this kind of round of the dissenters, if you like, within the party to get behind their man. But and and people were actually honestly thinking, like they did with the National Front back in 1979. We could be seeing the formation. We could be seeing the rise of of the BNP getting seats in Parliament. The same with the UKIP is today. Uh, we could see the BNP getting representation. They're getting a lot of support. And um, and but as a, as a result as a result of uh, of this. It, It was the 2010 general election and the events preceding this that actually caused the collapse of the BNP. Now, the first one was the question time debate. Do you know if you ever saw that by any chance? I did not. Uh, That was very popular in the UK. That was back in October 2009. This is what the BNP always wanted to get their man on question time to actually discuss the effects of mass immigration into Britain griffin absolutely flubbed it if you type in question time on youtube you can watch it it was absolutely destroyed by that panel he did not go in prepared and he was made to look an idiot when he asked his former opinions on the holocaust griffin just just blubbed that he'd changed his, his, his opinion because of radio signals at the time and so he, he said the holocaust happened and um, everybody was just laughing at him at this point and um, he was made to look an idiot however people kind of rallied behind him a little bit because they thought he was being bullied, but prior to the election, they then had a lot of scandals. It was coming out there's a lot of financial discrepancy in the party. Griffin was stealing party funds along with another member called Jim Dowson to fund uh, you know ludicrous financial schemes. They were actually their own families were going on holidays with members' money, Um, and so this was causing a lot of problems in the party. People felt Griffin was unaccountable to the party electorate. And there was also another argument with Griffin's corruption where one of the webmasters, I think Simon Bennett was his name, can't remember his full name, but he actually said, right, and and he actually shut down the BNP website a day before the general election so people couldn't go on and look up the policies of the party to go and vote for them. And so it completely led to a disaster for them. And so when the 2010 general election came around, people thought there was going to be these BNP seats won and they lost absolutely every, nearly every single uh, well virtually three quarters of their elect, elect well uh, seats if you like and they were only less, left with the a few seats around the country and um, they were expected to take Barking and Dagenham County Council and when and win the um and when the seat, the parliament parliamentary seat in that area, well, Griffin came third, they and they lost all the seats on the county council. They, and it was the same in other areas. People, and so... Uh, and now, with the recent elections, just a few weeks ago, they've now virtually lost all of their seats, if I recall. I'm not sure if we, even if they've got one left. So come the EU elections next year, they're probably going to loo- lose the two seats they've won anyway. So as a party, they've died. But they had the right idea. And they were doing well, but down to corruption, it collapsed. And, and that's the story of the BNP. <laughs> Regarding, right now,
0: excellent. Regarding the Holocaust... Uh, I know that in some European countries, including Canada, you can get tossed in jail for doing research on that World War Two mm-hmm. aspect. What are the laws like out there? Are you allowed to do research and express dissident opinions about that?
1: You are allowed to in the UK. I mean, even this was mentioned on Griffin's interview on Question Time. Jack Straw pretty much came out and said, Um, You know, it's not a crime here to deny the Holocaust, but you're going to be extremely condemned for it. It's only really a crime, I'd say, in the EU countries, particularly Germany and France and Austria. However, they are wanting to try and implement an EU directive or a law that would make Holocaust denial illegal throughout the entire membership bloc, which will include Britain. So you know, make, make make no mistake. Same with the anti-smoking laws here. That was an EU decision when they all decided to ban smoking in the pubs all at the same time. If they decide to go for outright Holocaust denial and they make that a, a complete EU issue, it will hit us too. So we're not safe from that.
0: That's incredible. That's well, based, that's that's how it is out here. It's you can you can do whatever research you want to do on World War II, including the Holocaust, but you will not be employed if you. Have a dissident
1: view about that. And do you know what's ridiculous, Christian? Take the Boer War casualties, for example. You sure. know, the 26,000 Boer women and children that perished in the concentration camps by the British. Why, is, why would I not lose my job if I did not have the Boer War? Why is there no Boer War memorial outside the Federal Reserve today? You know, why is yeah. the Holocaust more important than the Boer War? You know, Good why point. can you lose your job for criticizing the Holocaust? And, and I mean, if I said 26,000 Boers did not die, and they did not die of starvation, and they were lying. I would not be in trouble for it. I don't even like
0: truth. it. I, I don't like how we call the Jewish Holocaust the capital H Holocaust when there are other ones, such as the Bolshevik Revolution and the Ukrainians that died there. Um, what the Jews did to the Armenians?
1: What? what oh, we all know that. Don't there we? are several. It's, how
0: about how about the Holocaust, the, the the ultimate burnt offering of Jesus Christ, who was handed <laughs> over to the who was handed over by the Jews to the Romans? So. I, 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 I get really incensed about this capital H Holocaust. Um, Hitler is evil, and Jews are God's people.
1: If you want, if you want my personal opinion, I think the real Holocaust is being committed against the European peoples right now. It is. It is. That is the real Holocaust. And if you want, <coughs> and, and 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 to be honest, if we are Israel, it makes you wonder, you know. <laughs> it does. If this, if this is our, uh, rede- you know, our punishment, but I think uh, God willing, we will get through it. Yeah. Well, um, I'm showing that we've covered most of our outline. Do we have
0: any more additional points you want to make before we do our special segment?
1: Uh, Yes, I do, actually. I'd like to talk about the effects of immigration. And this is down to uh, kinism. And there's a few other topics as well I wanted to discuss as as well about uh, the situation here. Now, the first is the British love of the welfare state. Now, as we all know, there is a very strong love in the UK for welfare the british like the national health service they like their sort of state-funded social services uh, they want the state to protect them now what we have to understand is that this goes back in history okay and i and i if i wanted to pinpoint this division i'd say it started around the probably the 17 1800s and what we started to see is the radical conservative right from a, at that time in England your ancestors the puritans they at the time they were rallying against the monarchy they were rallying against the loss of rights in the homeland the loss of economic opportunity and they saw the new world as a chance to become free and build a new destiny for themselves a new israel and as a result you found that and i was reading this that this 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 mentality developed. that with every blow of his acts, a man could make a gentleman of his children, no matter where he came from. This was in America now, in Britain, on the other hand, people became reliant on the state, and they, but they always had been under the feudal era, and they became reliant on their industrial overlords who replaced the the feudal sharecroppers at that time. And and as a result, people were working for the state. They were not working for themselves in a sense. They felt they were working for Britain. They were not working for their own prosperity, their own meritoc- meritocratic um, um, wealth. They were working in, in, a, in a sense for the class above them. They were working for the for the empire, for Britain, for the crown and country. And in the nineteenth century, in particular, when it was the uh, the eighteen forty eight uh, spring time revolutions, the liberal revolutions at that time. The British rallied around the monarchy because they didn't want to lose the technological progress that was being made in, the, in, in Britain at that time. They wanted to be a part of that, they wanted to profit from this um, and so what we started to then see is the, as I would like to say, this formation of this dependent working class upon the government and as as we draw into the 20th century, we then actually start to see, uh, for example, wealth, welfare itself, the word dole, uh, as we use in the UK going on the dole. Dole itself, used in Australia as well, think of Bob Dole, the politician. It means, dull, uh one's own allotted portion in life, what one has been allotted to by the government, what one has been given. And this actually became to be seen, seen as... If I've worked all my life, I want to get something back from the state. The state owes me one. And as a result of this, we still see this mentality is very much in the British working and underclass today. I'm owed one. I'm owed a living. You know, the state owes me one. You know, I've I worked. Um, and it, you get today people going to their job centres and welfare offices saying the same thing. I want what I'm owed. And, and as a result, you, you then have this class that, That has developed – the population itself depends on the state and they're not willing to rebel. And this is why we tend to see people in Britain a lot more complacent with the situation than they are in America. In America, there are lemmings but there's still a very strong patriot – pro-gun, pro-freedom movement, whereas in Britain, yeah, people will want to vote for UKIP and, and so forth and so forth, but when it comes to state powers, they are still quite happy to go along with the status quo and, lose, and, and, and continue to lose their freedoms and rights in the process they want to be taken care of. Now, this all actually starts with the Beveridge Report, and the Beveridge Report was in 1942, and uh, Beveridge was, um, I think, I think it was an MP at the time. I know he was involved with the. Um, actually, was I think he was in the Interdepartment Committee on Social Insurance and Allied Services at the time. He um, and Beveridge, he actually was pretty much the founder of the National Health Service, the Welfare State, and so forth. And he identified what he calls the five giant evils, which was. Squalor, ignorance, want, idleness, and disease, and that by introducing these uh, welfare reforms into society, we could cure all of this. Um, rather than you know, rather than a man working for his own prosperity, the state will cure this. The state will make it better, and. And this is where the strong love of, of the state comes from. And at that time, unlike the Americans that were rallying against Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, the British were rushing to beverage and were saying, we want this, we want more of this, you know, we want what's owed. And this obviously then led on to the election of Labour, you know, in 1945. So if we look back in history, there's a strong love of the welfare state. And this is why the British are not going to fight back until they've got absolutely nothing left to lose, they rely on this state, they couldn't live without the state and the state knows perfectly what it's done and is to make people reliant on the state. Now in regards to immigration itself, as I'll go on to, what we're, what we're seeing is that there are two groups here, the non-whites, the Muslims, like we saw in the past, and the Eastern Europeans, once again the Poles, the Czechs, the Slavs and so forth, and the Russians birth rate wise, the non-white migration has now gone up to about at least I think 9 million or so. We've been getting about 2 million people in every year or so. I mean, I, mean, I think uh, a couple of years ago it was hot, more Brits left the country uh, 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 I think half a million Brits left the country and yet more immigrants were coming in to replace them so we're seeing the change of our ethnic profile. We're starting to see it in this area. And but what we have to ask ourselves, the question, is that Anglo-Saxon Britain itself is dying. 64% of the births in this country now are white British. Um, the other, However, we have one thing in our favour, and that is the Eastern Europeans, and they're still having the babies. And as we're actually finding, the Polish themselves have actually topped the birth charts just above Pakistan. If, for like the first time in a long time, more babies are being born to Polish mothers and as we found last time, the Poles always integrate within a generation this is something the blacks have never been able to successfully do and what, 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 we, what I remember at college in particular was that when I was with the Eastern Europeans we went in, we took classes together and there were some Eastern Europeans there and us and there was also Muslims and and blacks and mixed race and the mixed race and the blacks segregated themselves they wanted to be with their own whereas the white eastern europeans they just got off the boat some of these blacks have been born you know born and bred here just like that killer of lee rigby and yet they wanted to segregate by themselves same with the muslims they wanted to be with themselves whereas the eastern europeans integrated with the british there was one guy there who was from russia He'd only just gotten off the boat, he'd been here for three years and he'd developed a local British accent and he'd been born and bred in Russia, man. You know, and he'd become British and his girlfriend was British and his children would become British. And so what I think could be in our favour is that the Polish birth rates themselves and the the Eastern Europeans might be able to give us a boost in, in terms of white demographics. And considering these people come from countries that have got more of a traditional outlook on life and a growing um, population of nationalism support for nationalism and the church in Eastern Europe, we might be able to swing it around and build a country with these people because they they, they will kind of reflect the same values we have. Yes, we may look more like the Czech Republic in another hundred years time but I'd rather look more like the Czech Republic than I would do uh, Iraq for example and um. That's my opinion on immigration. Um, Now, in regards to the um, British police, um, this is going to be be interesting as well. But this was to do in Scotland as well, and I think this is going to absolutely amaze everybody. But there is now a law or an attempt, a bill, sorry, in place that is going to give every Scottish child from birth to adulthood a a named person charged with keeping an eye on that child's interests until it reaches adulthood. I heard that means, about that through Alex Jones a couple of days ago. That's outrageous. It's outrageous, but it will come to Britain. Uh, and in regards to Scottish independence, I'd like to say to people, don't think it's going to save Scotland. Alex Salman wants a multiracial Scotland. He said he, Im- Scotland's a nation of immigrants. He wants to continue the immigration agenda. He wants to push Scotland into the EU. As soon as the, the, the ink is signed from independence from Great Britain, he'll join the EU. In my opinion, it's an EU attempt if to balkanize the uk and then to control that that, that way, if you like, but this has been planned by the EU. The EU have assets and I want to let people know a group called Common Purpose and Demos. Now this group came really into the fore from the 80s and the 90s, the cultural Marxists, and they infiltrated the institutions, the educational establishments, the job centres, the National Health Service, the police, uh, the fire service, uh, politicians are, uh, are under their influence, there are county councils, they're all over the place. And there's a guy called Brian Gerrish, and he's been uh, adv- advertising what's been going on with this, with this Common Purpose Group, and what they have, what their views are, is to promote mass immigration and to actually influence British political decision making more into a pro, uh, pro EU direction. That is to continue to push Britain towards more European integration. A lot of their four members, I believe. Were were probably educated in EU-based institutions. So there has been this plot to bring Britain uh, into the EU. And there's been an article released the other day, um, but well, a few months ago, by, by one chap saying in order to bring about the EU, they knew a European super state, they knew that the populations themselves, the natives, will not accept a super state. They wanted to keep their own ethno-identity. However, so they believe that by filling it up with different peoples from the Third World and elsewhere, they can then control the people and bring them into an everlasting union under divided provinces. But they they believe they can achieve a united union with a people that will only know loyalty to Europe and not to their previous homeland. However, as has been admitted by Christopher Hitchens and others, these people coming into the country, the Third Worlders in particular, have still got socially conservative values and they are not wanting to go along with this EU project, they want Islam and as a result they're going to be a lot harder to control, so what you're going to, going to end up with is Yugoslavia but this is what these people wanted to do um, uh, so it's a, it's a radical plan but it, but, but it, but it has its roots and, and these roots go, go back um, in regards to the gun laws I just wanted to further, further explain on that in, down, down to Dunblane that was, that, was that was like our Sandy Hook that was in Scotland around 1996, and they went in, and they um, a man went in with four uh, handguns, opened fire on the kiddies, you know, I think there were, you know, there were several deaths, committed suicide, and what at the t- at the time, it led to a debate about hand, private ha- ownership of handguns, now rifles and so forth had been made illegal previously. So the Conservative government at the time, and later on the Blair government just coming in, they... Um, they actually issued the Firearms Amendment Act of 97 and then another months, Firearms Amendment Act that was, um, that was added on later on to the original act that made all, you know, pretty much handguns illegal in the UK, including .22 calibre. So from that point on, uh, just owning any handgun was made illegal. This is where the disarming of the UK population came into place. Um, but the people rallied around it unlike in America where people right now are arming themselves and getting paranoid that they're going to come and take our guns in Britain they went in and handed the guns over they never argued about handing handing the guns over people supported it and people still here support this so what, what I'm trying to get at is we have in the UK a population that doesn't want to be armed doesn't want to abandon its welfare state doesn't want to get independent it wants to take it the easy way by voting for parties like UKIP who don't really have a radical plan of how to get us out of the EU. They think we can continue just by being in a free trade market with um, like Norway and, and, and Switzerland, but the EU will make it very difficult. They don't like Britain. They're going to make it very difficult for us to pull out, and I don't think they'd give in easily and let, and let us have that market. And demographic-wise, uh, if you wanted my ultimate opinion on when the change is going to come... Uh, considering we've we've now got children uh, under the age of 10 that are now a minority in parts of this country, I would say the next 20 years we're going to see, and this has not been seen, they've said demographic-wise, since the Viking and Saxon invasions, uh, Christian, back a 1,000 years ago. This is the first time... this is the first strong demographic change we've seen in a thousand years, and even then, the previous invasions was only really in addition to the the, the English gene pool. Um, you know, people, it, 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 there was very there was very little of it. That the the island pretty much re- re- remained um, with its Celtic roots. The the Vikings and the, the Saxons were were kinsmen, and they and they added very little to the gene pool. Same with the Romans. This is a completely alien influx, an alien change. Um, and, the, uh, and, therefore, the only way we can try and keep this country with a British character is by integrating the Eastern Europeans, and that's the only way we can resemble that character. So, in the long run, they may just save us, whereas with France, I don't think they've had the same influx of them in there. Um, but I would say 2030s, this country is going to look radically different compared to what it does now. And even though they say we'll be a minority past 2050 or 2060... Um, it's going to come much sooner, especially in the early generations. And 20 years is not a long time. Think about it, folks. It was only two years after Desert Storm 20 years ago. Now we're, in, we're only in 2013, 2033 ain't that long off. And that's when we're going to see the, 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 popular, the, the, the demographic change. And if you think about it, and if you think about this, people, that, and you think about how long that was, it ain't a long time at all. It's a very, very quick change. A very quick change. Um, so that's pretty much what I want to discuss on that with issue. All that,
0: all that horrible so, news regarding, you know, white genocide in Scotland. It reminds me of reminds me of a line from Braveheart, and of I've I've always wanted to quote King Longshank So here we go. Go on. Please. The problem with Scotland
1: is that it's full of Scots. If we can't <laughs> get them out, we shall breed them out. Thank you. Absolutely true and that's what Longshanks did in fact if you actually watch yeah. the you know the Braveheart movie there was actually at that time a plan to actually tra- you know take you know Scottish uh, women I think uh, what was it called again I'm trying to think of the law Primo did, Nocte uh, something no, they, like that. It, it, oh, I can't remember Primo. it anyway but uh, they, they, they wanted to breed them out and and this is crazy Christian but even as late as the 20th century um, the early, the early twentieth century in this country, there was still, um, fear, well, uh, distrust about intermarriage between Scots and Englishmen, even. Even as the early as the 1900s, same with the Irish and the Welsh. It used to be condemned to marry an Englishman. People used to think marrying uh, you know, somebody from England was the equivalent of marrying an African. You know that's how, They avoided it. it, was, it was, you know, they, they were worried about losing the Scottish culture. Uh, and even back then there was fears of the English blood, in the, uh, especially in around the 1700s with this, when Scotland was being ransacked by England. However, they had a good point. They they feared England. However, what we have to understand is that they were able to build a country together. They were of the same stock. And this is where I came with the, the Eastern Europeans. They will add on to us like the Scots did. And we can build a new society. And there was a guy in South Africa. And even though I'm going to talk about South Africa next week, I'll talk about this guy. He was on YouTube and he said, my country, my people lost about a quarter of our population. We nearly died out. We loathed the British. And yet, even though we were Dutchmen, we were, ruin- we were Dutchmen and they were Ruinecki, which is rednecks, we came to the table and we were able to build a country with the British. And, but can we not do the same with the blacks, he said? Can we not do the same? But people have said, you cannot. It's a different race and culture. Whereas with the British and the Dutch, they were from the same roots and they could build a similar society. We can do it with the Scots and the Irish and the Welsh. We can do it with Europe and we can do it with the Eastern Europeans. Um, in regards, though, I did want to bring up Generation Identitar, you know, uh, the guys um, over in France that are uh, causing a lot of headlines. Sure, yeah big problem with those guys I respect them, I like what they're, what they're about, but the problem is that they're also for a pan-European Union of sorts, they're wanting to go down the nationalistic European Union they believe that uh, they're fighting for Europe to remain European along with France to remain French I see this as another attempt to bring the some kind of form of an EU in through the back door, they may not have realised it but you're opening yourself up there to a, a European babel maybe not a multiracial one but and that could also be in another plot by these people. I don't know. Um, maybe they wanted to get people to fight for their homeland, and then when they've exhausted themselves, then they push themselves into the union because they can't resist it. Then they're too weak to stand on their own. Could be, but that's where I see it going. And before, as well, regarding the history of the uh, regarding the EU question and immigration, have you ever heard of a, uh, a French Jew called uh, Jack Satali? I have not. Jack Sitali, interesting guy, he is involved with Kissinger in the higher elites, even with Nicolas Sarkozy, and he wrote a book called, um, let me just get it here, A Brief History of the Future by Jack Sitali. This was in 2006, and this is pretty much an outline for the elite's agenda for the 21st century. And I'm just going to actually read a little bit. And and, and so Atali and was actually... Um, writing in this book what he foresaw was going to happen in the 21st century based on historical accounts, and but he was actually advocating, obviously, the globalised New World Order Marx, social Marxist model. But this is what has is, is happened, and this is what he actually predicted the three stages would be of the 21st century. The first would be super-empire. This would be in an era of privatisation where corporations are all the day. He writes, Money will finally rid itself of everything that threatens it, including nation-states, which it will progressively dismantle. The market will become the world's only recognised law." A system of power whose structures remain elusive but whose goal is global. Now, if we look at the conflict that we're in today, if the period we're in today from the US at the end of the Cold War around the 1990s, this is pretty much what has happened had the era of globalization of the super empire, if you like, the third era of globalization. It's all been about the corporations, the markets. Yes, nations have had independence, but they 've also been tied into the market as well. you know britain 's tied in with the eu japan 's tied in with the international market, and so forth you 've only got and, the, and, the, and and under various economic controls particularly by the by, by the leading u s empire this is pretty much the period we live in now. He was predicting the next phase would be hyper conflict, however, he was predicting this would start about in two thousand and thirty. However, I'm seeing it start 20 years earlier. And in Under Hyperconflict, he says, Super Empire will implode and there will be a period of worldwide chaos. Starting about 2030, Atali foresees devastating wars, pitting nations, religious groups, terrorist entities, and free market pirates against one another. Does 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 that not sound familiar? It sounds exactly where we are we are and he said this was going to be about starting about 2030 and there was another guy a british admiral if i recall and he predicted the future and it's all on on youtube and it was what the future was going to look like for 2030 and it was exactly the same thing as atali i think the elites have lost control in my own opinion i think they were expecting this to happen 20 years later i think they were expecting this period of globalization that we that we grew up under christian back in the 90s the 2000s and until now, to continue on until 2030. And I think it's imploding before their very eyes too quickly, too soon. So what he predicted, well, they've induced labour, basically. This is what's happening. But here is what he said would happen after. Hyper-democracy. And this was going to be in 2060. And this is going to be exhausted by wars and social upheavals. The world public... The, the, the world public, sorry, will welcome with open arms the creation of a democratic world government. It will be a collectivist system with everyone working towards the common good. And this was going to be in 2060. And this is pretty much what his, his belief is, how the, the future would unfold. This is what could be part of the new world orders plan. And, and, and it's true. It's true. People are going to be exhausted. You know, no more benefits, no more welfare. They're starving. Diseases are rampant. Uh, There's been a lot of conflicts. What we're seeing in Syria today is Europe tomorrow and probably America tomorrow as well. It's going to be South Africa tomorrow. People, there's going to be a lot of upheaval. But when people have got everything taken away from them, they're then going to want to be saved, just like they were with the UN. After the end of World War II, they're going to want peace and this is where it's going to go, and they're going to offer them this solution, and people are going to lapse it up. He also speaks at this time about sexuality um, becoming more prominent, how, get, how the family is going to disappear, pretty much what we've got today. What we are seeing, folks, is just a taste of th- things to come. Tomorrow, it, th- tomorrow, what we're seeing today is going to be 100, 150 times more, um, extreme tomorrow uh, and he actually says with technology this will then create the youth to even rebel even more from traditional authority and this is what they want he does actually say there could be a re-rise in Christianity however around the 20s, 30s, 40s Um and people sympathising like they are today with the Armenian and the Syrian Christians that are going to be persecuted by the Islamics and people are going to want to side with them and there could be a return to at least some form of uh, of, Christ- of Christian, um, you know, people rounding around Christianity. And he puts here, the United States could then, around 2044, pray to theocratic temptation, explicit or implicit, in the shape of theocratic isolationism, which democracy... Would be no more than a shadowy presence. However, even then, they have plans to get rid of that and, and to actually bring and, and, to, and to actually then bring on this new ward order that is going to replace that. It, it, he also actually talks. He thinks the dollar is going to remain till twenty twenty-five. I don't remember this was written in twenty two thousand six, and I think we've actually expedited very fast. But lastly, I just want to talk what he says about immigration, and I'm just going to read this. Immigration flows will expand and submerge nation states. Great Britain will become a major host country, especially for citizens of Central European countries. The latter will then, in their turn, welcome Ukrainian workers, themselves replaced by Russians, themselves replaced by vast Chinese populations. Remember, folks, the Russians are scared of the Chinese. The Chinese have got a billion people there. Like with Africa, there's lots of rich ground there in Siberia. They can actually colonise. The Russians are not are only beginning to have babies again. They're still suffering demographic-wise. Um, so, so that's what. But this is what Atali believes. He said, "Resistant countries will learn that a population inflow is the condition of their survival." In a sinister passage, Atali speaks of third-world hordes engulfing the West. Ever more numerous masses will hurl themselves at the gates of the West. They already numbered hundreds of thousands every month. That figure will increase to to millions, then tens of millions. The United States will be the most Popular destination in 20 years, the Hispanic and African American population will almost constitute a majority in the United States. Nomadism will also become the norm in the West. More and more people will leave one country for another. There will soon be more than 10 million of them switching countries every year. Our main incentive will be money, but many will leave because they are disgusted by their homeland. They will no longer want to depend on a country whose tax system, legislation and even culture they reject and also to disappear completely to live another life. The world will thus be increasingly filled with people who have become anonymous of their own free will. It will be like a carnival where everyone, ultimate freedom will have chosen a new identity for himself. In other words, you've got no more loyalties to your homeland. You don't know where to go. We see this a lot of people going to Australia, a lot of Portuguese now moving back into Angola. People are moving around, even into Europe, and they're losing their identity. And this is what they are doing. And so, therefore, the more people lose their identity, the more they can build this global system. And that's Jack Sitali, and I will just repeat the book itself. Still want to read that, the full book, but this is just the, the brief outline from what I studied of the book. And that is A Brief History of the Future by, by Jax Atali, 2006, and is a Sephardim Jew. Just so, you know, is not one of the Askenazes.
0: <laughs> did he predict that tribaltheocrat.com would single-handedly
1: bring down the globalists? Um, I don't think he's predicted that one yet, okay. but uh, like I've always said, you know, and this is what I want to say to folks, what we have to remember is that God is the ultimate decider in what happens in the future he is the ultimate judge of what is going to happen whatever these people have got planned god is going to bring it down because it does not fit in with his design or his will so like i said screw jacks atali screw the rest of those globalists you know they're trying to build this new satanic uh, babel and they aren't going to succeed man but also we'll just like to point out um What's happening now in the UK is, well, we've got a lot of paedophile cases. You know, we're seeing a return to the McCarthy era, in a sense. You know, they're trying to out these paedophiles, but basically they're going for the low end of the spectrum of paedophiles. Uh, What we're actually seeing... um, do you know, don't you hate it when you forget the names again? Uh, Jimmy Savile, that's him, Jimmy Savile. Uh, funnily enough, by the way, my, my dad, Um, no, no, not my dad, sorry, a friend of my dad's, he remembers meeting Jimmy Savile once and he said it was in a bar once in, the, in, in London and Savile's there at the bar. It was in the 1980s when Savile was still huge, It was big, he was popular. And he goes over and says, hey, up, Jimmy, and he said, Jimmy... You know, kind kind of looked at him like he was almost scum in a sense. You know, he developed this arrogant superiority complex. But uh, I think he said hello to him and kind of then just turned back to his conversation. But um but Jimmy Savile—it's turned out he was a Satanist, and a lot of these people in these places are Satanists. And that there were there's actually been descriptions of of, of, of victims at that time. Of Savile going in with uh, performing satanic rituals with with other members, you know high high, high in, celebrities and and, and, and other indiv- individuals, and there was a documentary a documentary released in the nineteen nineties, and they actually said tried to get this release this documentary that there was this paedophile ring high up in places in Britain, and it was shut down. This documentary It was forbidden to be broadcast on the BBC, and I think it was that documentary that would have implicated the likes of Savile sooner than we would have thought however they're getting rid of the the hangers on of of of, 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 uh, of this paedophile ring but the top the top the, the, one, the top echelon's uh, echelon's if you like of the british government they're going to st- stay pretty, uh, the establishment they're going to stay in place what I think we're going to see in regards to this is, I know there's people fearing that paedophilia could become soon the new norm, just like homosexuality, and as we see with Jack Satali, that's the plan. Sexual freedom, folks, sexual freedom to do whatever you want. You want to shag your dog? Go ahead. That's what they want. And this is what we're going to see. And so at, at some point, it scares me as a Christian, but I can see at some point that uh, them actually getting political parties elected into, into these dying, decaying societies of ours advocating for paedophile rights, and we've even seen an actual open paedophile party in the Netherlands that was established a few years ago to give greater rights for adults to make love to children. It's disgusting, but you know, when they get rid of all these morals, that's the next road they're going to go down on. Remember, homosexuality was dis- was something so disgusting, so sinful 100 years ago, now it's acceptable. Racial mixing was considered sinful. That's true. Or, and but now people accept it. So, you know, and, and you don't and people think, Oh, it'll never happen. Well, who would have thought in the nineteen fifties that um you know, people be you know getting married outside the race en masse? Nobody did it. People didn't want to marry Scotsman, <laughs> you know, never mind blacks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but like I said, with Atali, that's pretty much the truth and we can see this all coming together. Uh, is there any more questions from the chat by any chance? I don't think so. Okay, I just wanted to also go on about the British police arrest real quickly. The British police arrest themselves. If you make an anti-offensive, comment offensive to Islam or towards uh, any other ethnic minority community that is deemed offensive due to the Public Order Act, you will be arrested for inciting racial or religious hatred. That is why I have to keep a very, very moderate tone. But I believe, God willing, with Christ guiding me, that I'm going to speak the truth. I give all races respect, but I say if there is something to criticize, it must be criticized and in in, in that and in that respect, we have to criticize it and y- you know I'll do it in, a, in in a polite fashion, whereas a lot of these people they're trying to incite right righteous righteous hatred i suppose over this, but even still, it just shows you how sensitive the situation is in this country, and that' anything deemed racist or offensive, you could still go down for we don't have any first Amendment here. That it's like I have said, you know, sometimes a man has to tell the truth and sometimes, you know, you can't not tell the truth. You have to tell the truth. And um, and that's what I believe.
0: Well, God knows how much I hate cops. I, I just can't stand these scumbags. There's not a single liberal anti-Christ satanic law they won't enforce. Oh, it's, <laughs> well, it's so scummy.
1: I've had actually a couple of incidences with the police before now. I I had one incident a few few years ago when I was 18 and another incident. um, The police, I once got into a fight and the police were actually very sympathetic towards me helped me out and, you know, they got me home safely and they were great. But and, and what you tend to find in the UK is that we don't... It's half and half, you get some of those officers that are the real bastards out there, whereas you kind of get others that are a little bit more, you know, sympathetic to the general public. They want to be bobbies on the beat and still be communitarian. And, but these other other cops, that I said, were real little Hitlers. You know, they pulled up once and they went, ''Where are you going?'' And I went, ''Well, why?'' And he said, "Who's asking the fucking question? Where are you going?" Yeah. And I was just like, um, "Home. Where's home?" So I kind of, you know, gave them my details. Had to do it. She didn't know who these were, and I said, "Have you got any idea on you by any chance?" And he just laughed. And he slapped the back of his jeep, and he said, "That's your idea. That's your ID, mate." And drives off. Are you guys
0: required to give you, to give ID? I'm not uh, sure what not, your
1: civil. Actually, this is an interesting question. They have been trying to introduce an ID card into the UK okay. for quite some time, going back to the 2000s and even the 1990s, with with ID, with microchip on and all. Yeah. However, it's not been pushed through yet. The Labour government was attempting to push it through. Uh, however, it, David Cameron said, this is not Nazi Germany. We don't have to push this through. But then later on, you know, it's kind of backed down from that and sort of world investigated, but for, for now... It's on the back bench, uh, but they will introduce one eventually, yes. But not, I know that not, out,
0: not I asked because out here it, it takes some real balls to do it, but you don't have to give a cop your name, your address, your ID, if there's no reasonable suspicion of a crime. There has to be probable cause, and again, it, it, takes, some, it takes some nerve to do it, but you, your YouTube videos are full of people doing this and saying, look, am I free to go? Are you detaining me? And the cops hate it. But they eventually have to call a supervisor out there who knows the law better than Mm -hmm. they do, and the guy's free to go, but... Wasn't sure what your civil liberties were out there
1: compared to – What our civil liberties is, they will take you down. If they find yeah. it's actually a breach of public order, they will take you down. If it's, if it's inciting hatred of some kind, they will take you down. Uh, even if it's uh, – you can argue I've got my rights. I don't have to answer these questions. But then they can actually argue you're obstructing then the public course of justice and then take you down. In this country, people are far more compliant with the police and the authorities than they are in America – if the police stops you and asks for your address, you give it to them. You don't really have a right here. You can't say, I don't have to answer you that question. Right. You know. They will want want it. And if you, and then if you don't cooperate with them, they can then take you into custody for obstructing police time and justice.
0: I was talking to my dad tonight and he was he went to the store to pick up some groceries yeah. and he had his dog in the in his truck with him and he gets out of the grocery store, goes back to his truck and some cop goes, Hey, do you know that you, you, can't have, uh, you can't leave children in your truck unattended? And he said, yeah, I know that. Yeah. And he goes, well, do you also know that you can't leave dogs in your car unattended? And then my dad said, it's 65 degrees out. Because <laughs> the laws are, yeah. are, are because people let their kids roast in the car sometimes. But the guy gave him a yeah. hard time about his dog who was okay.
1: Yeah. Oh, Oh. yeah, we've had the same cra- craze over here, but now they're trying to bring in more draconian measures. That is going to be a law, that you can't leave your dog in the car. That's something else they're going to be cooking up, you know, people. Yeah. And they get all the sheep all wound up saying, oh, the poor little doggies are dying in the car, you know. We can't let the poor little darlings, uh, you know, dehydrate <laughs> to death. And so now they're going to make up probably more regulations and rules at some point that will, you know, probably restrict you from having a dog in your car. It will come. Um, also, in, in regards to social services, I'd like to also talk about the child snatching cases in the UK. This has been broadcast by Christopher Booker. But what is happening is that the social services in this country are allowing the extreme cases in my opinion to take place the abuses to take place so uh, so they let one case go off like the baby p case where there's a mass abuse scandal and the children then then the child is found to have died and then there's a huge outcry very similar um in, in sociology if you actually read the um the moral panic and they create this moral panic about about the situation, and then they create more draconian orders to, in order to protect children and Then the majority of the innocent parties are then targeted by these people. they are then having their doors kicked in at the early hours of the morning get having their children snatched from them, and uh, they can 't get the children back easily through the actual the court system and it's happening in England and it's happening all all over and when this Scottish law comes in place which I'm absolutely sure they'll follow something in simply with Britain or they'll try and get around it somehow you're going to start to see this becoming commonplace where a social worker is involved in every aspect of your child's life in order to keep the child safe including from radical political views and opinions. And you're going to especially to see this as the demographics start to change and they want to try and clamp down more on law and authority when they've not got that same communitarian approach that the British are willing to give still. When there's a lot more crime in this new divided society, they're going to want especially to get more draconian. If you want the future of Britain, uh, you want to see this, the, the story, the film Children of Men, I think that illustrates the, uh, the, you know, the future of Britain very, very well.
0: There's a question for you in the chat room. Are sure. you... Are you there to read it or should I read it for you? Uh,
1: I'm just going to reconnect. Sorry, every 25 minutes you've uh,
0: uh, 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 – Jamie posted a
1: question from Eric. Jamie posted a question from Eric. Let me just see. Uh, What is his opinion about the situation in Northern Ireland, Ulster nationalism, Sean Sinfen, and the relationship between Protestants and RCs? Interesting question, this. Um, there is still a fractious relationship in Northern Ireland, and between the um, be, 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 between the Protestants and the Catholics. But it's not as extreme as what it was um, back in the past. Uh, my parents remember growing up in the Troubles. This was the seventies and the eighties, when the you know the days of Bobby Sands, if you like, and um, you know when there was a lot of upheaval in Ireland uh, with Northern Ireland question, and that's when the uh, you know, the Brit- you know, the British military was, you know, fighting against the IRA at that time. And they actually both remember being involved in IRA... Act- well, not, not involved, but, you know, caught up... Well, my, my dad caught up in an IRA att- attack once. And that was... It was, I think, at a, at a model home exhibition in the 1980s. And it had gone with it, you know, with my uh, my grandparents, I think, and my uncle. And they'd gone to see this, this model X home exhibition... And suddenly this bomb goes off. My dad hears this explosion and he just turns around and he sees suddenly all these people injured, blood, blood everywhere. And that was an IRA attack. And he'd seen pretty much face-to-face with, with, with death almost there. So, you know, we, we remember what was happening with the IRA. It's still very recent. There was a lot of tension between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics. And even today in Ireland, it remains what I call um, the Utah of Great Britain and that it is probably the most religious place in the whole of the uh, of the UK almost it's like an enclave there's still that divide there however it's now new immigrants are coming in and the Protestants and the Roman Catholics they're still against each other but now the attention is focusing on the newcomers these people that are um, not traditionally british uh, like, I mean, there's actually been, a, I think, a, a pipe bomb attack against some Romanian immigrants in Northern Ireland a few years ago. You never even hear of that in England. So there's a lot of frustration. The tension between them um, is going to still be there for a while. But I think the more the demographics change, considering birth rates are, are a lot higher for ethnic minorities in Northern Ireland now than what they were, I think you will, might start to find a bit more of an alliance forming. But then again, I've seen IRA idiots before now arguing that. They don't give a crap that England's still run by the EU or Ireland. They don't give a damn about immigration. They still want to take the fight back to good old Tommy Atkins because the Queen and everybody else in England's responsible for our problems, you know. But we're all right with those black, nice black men coming into Dublin, you know, and that uh, you know, we're fine with that. But you know, no, we want to hit back at Tommy Atkins. So there is still that that tension there. Um, I think though, within regards to Ulster nationalism itself. I can't see them uh, wanting to go independent. The Scots, yes. The Welsh, perhaps. But not the Northern Irish. They're probably the most loyalist out of the loyalists of the entire country. They're probably more British than the British themselves. In a sense, they're probably more loyal to the Queen than anybody. Uh, British Israelism, that's very strong in Ulster circles. You know, the Orange men. Um, So they they will fight back and they still have, you know, strong Protestant communities in that area. And... I think the question, like I've said itself, is not the future between the Protestants and the Catholics, it's the future between the Northern Irish versus the incoming ethnic minorities. That is the question. And will there be a new IRA that will form to resist this, or will they continue to fight each other? Despite recent attacks, I'm not 120% sure, but it could come. Excellent, eh? Excellente, my Presidente, from Tropico. Have you ever played the game Tropico? I have not. You've never played Tropico? I've not heard of it. And he's never. And, and listen to this, folks. He never even heard of Blackadder I until know. a few days I ago. I tell you,
0: I knew of it by the name Bean. I did not know that uh, Rowan Atkinson had done Blackadder stuff.
1: Blackadder is absolutely one of my favorites. We used to even watch it one back in the 90s as kids, man. Um, uh, and and it is true. I love it's, that It's true. You know, it's uh, everybody in the UK knows. Did you see the skit
0: he did at the start of the Olympics last year?
1: <laughs> I did actually. Yeah. Oh man, that was great. And I He's also a... remember when the Queen. Well, the da- Daniel Craig. Can you remember that when uh, you know suddenly we all thought the Queen had parachuted out ha- of the aircraft? <laughs> it's good stuff. Yeah, we we tried to put on a good show, but even then, the whole introduction was full of cultural Marxist nonsense. True. And uh, you know, like uh, as people were criticising, how many black industrial um, kingdom is, is Bard kingdom Brunels did you know in the eighteen hundreds? You know, they were trying to portray these people off uh, as. Um, you know, as being the actual masters of the Industrial right. Revolution and the advancement of the British Empire when it was all white Brits, you know, and how Britain's always been multiracial, you know, with um, little country villagers, you know, popping around black, white and multicolored all together, you know, all yeah. completely socialist, left wing.
0: There's people in the, in the chat room to say that they, they love black adder, so now I feel really stupid now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, Kevin? You are cool, man. You are cool. <laughs> and like I said, I've d- I'm doing this the Kelly, Kevin Alawine approach. What was it, is it? Alawine or something. How do you pronounce it? Alawine. Alawine.
0: Alawine. Alawine. Sorry,
1: Kevin. Sorry, mate. I'm just I'm having a bit of fun I here. <laughs> uh, I've got something about the Syrian Civil War here. Yeah. Uh, the Syrian Civil War is, like I have said, what, what I said with Jack Sitali, it's the beginning of the ethno. Uh, crisis. We've seen a lot of exiles from various different polit- groups in Syria. What we have to understand is that Syria was formed by a French mandate after the First World War when the Syrian territory was handed over to France, like Iraq was to the British, from the Ottoman Empire, and it was fractured into various different, different ethno-states ethno with, with, with different religions, such as well, the, the religious divide between Sunni and Shia. Uh, there were never fixed, permanent ethnic borders, and as a result of this, what we've seen is these these countries were always very, very divided, and it only took the law of a strong ruler or a strong party to actually keep these keep these fractured ethno groups held together, like Saddam Hussein and his Baath Party, Hafez al Assad and his and the Baath Party in Syria, and his son. However, now that authority is disappearing. And and that society is now in chaos. This is going to be, first of all, the future of European states. This is going to be the future, what we're going to see in France right now happening. This is going to be the the next few decades here. You're going to see it very similar, maybe not to the same degree, but there's going to be a lot of conflict, a lot of writing. The future of Britain will be like Syria in a sense that... um, we're going to see a very enlarged, like Northern Ireland type of scenario based on an ethnic divide, similar to Syria, but you know, probably with fewer guns, more crowbars and Molotov cocktails, British style. Where the Syrian civil war is going, that is a good question. Is it going towards the Third World War? Is it going towards the new Great War of our time? Or will it just be another conflict like Libya that will just blow over and nothing will happen? We have to remember the start of the Great War here. People say to me... Are we in 1910 or 1930? And I say the 1910s. We're not at the Second World War yet. We're not at the ultimate last war that must be fought before the new order can be built. We're actually at the beginning of the decline, the end of globalism, third end of globalism. And remember, prior to the um, 21st, the 20th, second, 20th century, the early then, everybody was trading Everybody um, was interconnected. People actually said, "There'll never be another war. There'll never be another war. We're all going to be trading, and we're all going to be happy, and everything's going to continue." And it surprised them when World War One erupted over the death of Franz Ferdinand. So, what I'm saying is, what could happen in Syria could end up becoming the new situation that brings in a whole um, collapse you know, coalition of nations together, like you saw in the Great War. And this could happen over Syria. Syria is very much our Balkans crisis today. I probably argue probably less Spanish civil war, more Balkans. Um, Some say it's the new Spanish civil war. Um, I'd I'd personally say, like I said before, you know, it, it, it reminds me of Serbia and Austria. That's what it reminds me of. And Russia. Because if you remember the Spanish civil war, Italy and Germany only sent... Uh, you know detachments really to assist what you saw with the great war was that in serbia you had all sides kind of wanting to support what the the powers that were supporting this other little power and we're seeing the same here you know russia and russia was supporting little serbia last time austria was against little serbia now russia's supporting little syria and america's against little syria and and so we can and now Israel's against little Syria and China's for little Syria and Iran's for little Syria and Britain and America France against little Syria and you can see where this is building up this is world war 1 territory folks not world war 2 uh, if 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 i will be honest now what about the christians interestingly enough jack atali said exactly the same thing the this new rising christian movement will start to take um, An interest in the Christians living in the Middle East that are going to be persecuted and they're going to want to fight against Islam. So I think this is pretty much where it's gearing towards. Uh, will the UK and the French intervene? Well, they all, all already have done in Mali. If the US is going in, then they'll go in as well. Um, that, that's my opinion, anyway. Uh, but wh- wherever America's going, right. Britain and France is going. Sad, but sad, but true. Well, we are the lapdogs, um, and, um, yeah. and and if we were to pull out of the EU tomorrow, it would be like a floating uh, air, aircraft carrier with nowhere to okay. go. Uh, we'd be broken. you know. We, 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 unfortunately, the future of Britain is not an independent country. We have become like the Spain of the 18th and 19th century, and that is a redundant world power that, that was eclipsed by the other growing world powers, and that's where Britain is now. And at some point we're going to lose Gibraltar, the Spanish have sent a warship past, the Spanish will want Gibraltar back at some point, and and they have said, British generals, uh, a few British generals, that if they were to do a full invasion of the Falklands, this being Argentina, we would struggle to defend those islands and take them back. We've got the technological superiority to fight it off, but uh, uh, strength-wise and international support-wise, we haven't got it.
0: I was just checking my Twitter feed and I want to give a quick Negro ball update. Congratulations (laughs) to the Indiana Pacers who have forced a decisive game seven against the Miami Heat. Okay, enough of that.
1: (laughs) Can you remember the Olympics last year and it was almost like they called it the Negro Olympics, you know, they were showing off Mo Farah as the new face of Britain Uh, and, you know, can you remember all that? I I do. Negro worship is insane out here. well, what I'm going to do next time for the episode in South Africa uh-huh. is I'm going to be discussing a bit about the, the BIWF, but some of the people I met in there, but also they came up with some interesting ideas from their perspective of, of how they've seen, especially the Negro worship, how it's developed. Like one guy from there told me that um, they've got an obsession with the Negro at the moment. You know, the Negro's got to be president. The Negro's got yeah. to be prime minister. You know, he's got, and there was even actually a pamphlet from the... Uh, the French, I think, a, a PDF file from France. And it's actually had here, we're going to teach children of all races that one day a black man could be French president too. And that was actually backed by the United States and the United Nations. And also we've got to remember, folks, the European Union, this all goes back to the United Nations. It's all part of the same game. Uh, and that is they want to have these ev- eventual, these super states any a, a European Union, a North American Union, South American, an East Asian Union, and then your world government. You know, you've got you've got to have all. You've got to actually um, build slices of the pie to then get the full pie. Right. And that's where we're, where we're going. I've got here as well, and did you know that some of the WikiLeaks involved US plans to change French and British demographics? Yes, as I've just mentioned before, the United States was involved with this. The United States has been a big pusher before now in, in, in the European Union. They have supported this right back from the Marshall Plan after the end of World War II. You know, you remember the posters... Uh, You know, Europe will move forward together. Uh, This is where it comes from. They've also supported mass immigration because they're also in with this UN agenda. And this is what we saw with the French publication, with the black French president. It was backed by the United States. And we're also probably going to see in the next few years the possibility of a black British prime minister. This is what the left want to push through. There's one guy called Chuka Unumum. Sounds absolutely African. That does, doesn't he? He's a black and born British baby, and they want they get in. He could be the face of the Labour Party, and there's another one in the Conservatives as well. So the the race is going to be on to get the next black, the first black British Prime Minister, and that's going to be the next one. They've done the woman. You guys have got to do the woman. Yeah, we yeah, I think I, think I think
0: the woman's next for us.
1: Yeah, I actually – now, look, I don't do psychics or anything, but I remember once watching this YouTube video and, you know, just this psychic was on and she was said, 2016, uh, there's going to be a woman that's going to take office. And I thought, well, dear, anyone can tell you that. Yeah. But I think so. it could be Hillary Clinton. <laughs> and I uh, thought, oh, boy.
0: Yeah, it'll be Hillary Clinton versus uh, Rand Paul in 2016. Rand Paul? Is he that big? He
1: he's, probably, he's not that big. He's just the only thing the Republicans can offer. Offer? Oh, yeah. Uh, off it. So that's pretty much Ron Paul um, What well, I actually think though Isn't he a big, uh, big Zionist? Rand is, Ron his father is not yes, but, Yeah, yes. Rand
0: has recently said That if you attack Israel You attack us
1: uh, yep. that's, that's complete uh, Bullshit why, in, your, in your opinion though Why would you say Hillary is going to win?
0: Well if they're going to put a female up there I don't see who would Who else is there to put up against Rand Paul On the democratic side
1: I would probably say there's actually that Hispanic influence, isn't there? Marco Rubio, we oh. could make a room.
0: Well, people are thinking Rand Paul would run with uh, Marco Rubio as his vice president, mm. and maybe Hillary. Mm. Let's say she could probably have some uh, lesbian Hispanic uh, pedophile <laughs> somewhere.
1: Yeah, the know. gay black disabled vice president. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've got to go through the whole round. But speaking of which, with um, with Marco Rubio, um, what about George Bush's son? Uh, was it jeb oh, bush uh, yeah. jeb bush 's son is the. i think he 's half mexican isn 't he poised to make a run
0: well i I know the, they're they 're trying to get him in in some kind of politics unfortunately
1: there 's also Bobby Jindal too i know he 's another contender
0: yeah, and politics is all theater and garbage. it is
1: it 's like we 've all said it it 's become theater. <laughs> Look, what we've now got to do, and this is my own opinion, is that we need to now start laying down the roots for community building within the West. Uh, there is attempts within the nationalist community to do so, but I think, by and large, we need to now start to build down r- roots where we can actually get a replacement rate going and we can actually build a community. And I've actually seen um, that... Uh, um, and, and I've actually uh, seen demographic-wise. Um, sorry, somebody just messaged me, and it's completely taken me off course. you stupid That's people? <laughs> yeah, what I was going to actually say though in regards to community community building is that with all the kinists in America, you could effect- effectively bring to the, bring together one and make an Irania, which I'll talk about next week next time. Great. Out of the Kinnis you could do it, and this is the future. We need to have these communities and create our own local electorate to start to get things done. We need to move away otherwise we can't take power back through this giant. We have become the Protestants that were wanting to flee to America, you know, hiding in their churches. This is what we've become. I want to put a quick plug in
0: before we go to our last segment for the Traditionalist Youth Network. It's Ah, at tradyouth.org and that's head up by Commander Matthew Heimbach and technical grand wizard Matt Parrott. Mm-hmm. And they actually do a, a daily podcast. It's going to be a live show soon when they get the technical details ironed out. But I've always wanted to have something to listen to while I'm at work other mm-hmm. than Alex Jones or some libertarian garbage. So check out yep. uh, tradyouth.org for some white interest articles and podcasts.
1: Good stuff. <laughs> Actually, I just wanted to mention Alex James briefly there, but have you noticed when you listen to Alex James, he always makes you feel so bloody depressed? He does. That, he does, that, and you listen his to him, and he offers no solution. And you listen to Gerald Salenti, and Gerald Salenti goes on and on, oh, the world's going to collapse, oh, the economy's going to collapse. It's going to collapse this year, folks. It's going to collapse. And the white shoe boys, they're going to collapse the economy, and everybody's going to be screaming and dying, we're going to have World War Three. Yeah. And Alex James goes off on that rant as well. And it offers nothing. It offers not a solution. Okay, all they what do offer do about it? That,
0: all they offer is the info Wars store, where you can buy some colloidal silver and nasal spray and some Berkey water filters. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's exactly what they're doing, and they've ultimately become like those churches saying, "And if you, you, you know, put money into our church or organisation, and we'll save you." It yeah. reminds me of those South Park episodes where you know, if you put this blanket over you, whatever, you can survive the volcano or, or yeah. whatever. Um, he gets. It's a,
0: Alex gets the anti-establishment message out there, but it's a, it's a bit of a hu- hustle what he's doing.
1: Well, Alex Jones is, he's basically the, um, as I've always said, the gatekeeper. He's getting the message out, but he's making a profit from it. When it comes to solutions, yeah. he's not your man. He's just there to rail and rant against the establishment. Yeah,
0: and as, as a man um, who's married to a Jewess, he's not going to be calling out them or mm-hmm. Israel.
1: I, I know he has criticised Israel um, before in the past, but he does it when he's absolutely forced to yep. do it. He, I, I mean, come on, we all remember the, that quote of his, the Arab Zone Hollywood. I mean, come on, people. <laughs> the Arab Zone, bloody Hollywood. Wow. Oh. But uh, I'd also wanted to point out in regards to Islam as well. And this is something else I wanted to point out, and it's due to this murder. But have you noticed how blacks are attracted to Islam more than any other group next to the Arabs? I have not. You've never noticed this. Blacks are,
0: you see, blacks are. Oh, in terms of the religious group that they're yes. attracted to. Oh, yeah, they're
1: tra- they are absolutely attracted to Islam. And we've seen a gr- And what we see, especially in the communities here, the mixed race and the black community, yeah. there is a huge move towards Islam, not towards Christianity. Yeah, they're going they, towards Islam.
0: They have a, a nominal, c- culturally accepted uh, attachment to Christianity, but when, they, when when they get serious about
1: religion, it's usually Islam. You're right. They are, well, you have to understand this goes back in biblical history and that is the Arabs were born of uh, Negro and um, I, th- I think Esau, Esau, Esauite and uh, Ishmaelite intermarriage. They, they, they were born from that and a, a lot of blacks, uh, blacks have played a prominent role in the development of Islam. I think there's something – is it called Belial's Call or something or another? Not sure. Not sure, but that was actually a Negro that did that. And uh, so they've become intertwined. intertwined. And I remember Malcolm X saying that, um, you know, the Bible is a white man's book, whereas Islam, you know, he felt more comfortable as a black man being being involved with Islam. And so what we can see when push comes to shove, the black community will always side with Islam. They have historical roots there. and, And it was founded with them as well. And so that's something else I wanted to point out.
0: Right. I think we should wrap up soon. These, <laughs> yes, these, these podcasts are
1: really difficult to edit when they get
0: over two hours because of the, the file size. But
1: I uh, have to say, I do apologize for keeping you on, but there's just been oh, a lot of. Oh, no. To talk I've, about. I've
0: enjoyed it all. I think the oh. chat room has been
1: very active, too, and they've all enjoyed it. Thank you very much for listening, people, and um, I have to say it's been a pleasure to chat. Uh, do you know when the next episode's going to be for the South Africa one? It'll be two weeks from today, so June 15th, 10 o'clock June p.m. June 15th. Okay, I'll be sure to uh, to note that down in my, my my diary. Now that everybody knows how I sound like, I hope <laughs> i have uh, not disappointed. Well, um, it's been a really
0: uh, privilege to have you on. Thanks for standing up so late. It's almost 4 o'clock there, right now. Isn't it five right? o'clock? Five
1: o'clock. Wow. Yeah, and we've got sunlight. We're in your yeah. tomorrow.
0: You are in my tomorrow. It's happy Sabbath yeah. day.
1: Happy Saturday and uh, Sabbath. Did you say? Well, yes, yeah, Saturday here. I think it's just becoming your Sunday, and we're five hours into our Sunday.
0: That's right. We have five hours or uh, five minutes till Sunday.
1: Oh yeah. uh, well, you, you're entering a new day, and I'm That's living true. in your future, and it's mm. exactly the same as it was a few hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> So it's been a pleasure once again and may uh, may God bless you all and uh, have a wonderful evening
0: thank you so much I want to give a quick uh, uh, announcement for future shows we mentioned Jamie Dobbs coming on June 15th and after that we're going to have on we're going to have on uh, Laurel Laughlin to come Laurel Laughlin to talk about some kinism resources that will be uh, toward the end of July so just stay tuned at tribaltheatgrad.com for more updates and we'll give you more information about that
1: and no show is complete without this. Yep. We're taking the red pill here, people. Keep taking that red pill. <laughs>
0: that was great. All right. We'll see you next time, guys. Thanks a lot. See you next time. <laughs>